Continuing my look through Amazing Spider-Man from the very beginning. For those that are new, previous episodes in this series are... Number 38, number 40, number 42, number 44, number 46, number 49, number 52, number 93, 94, 108, 113, 118, 125, 131, 138 and 142. If you had all those numbers, you're a Euro Millions jackpot winner. Congratulations. Pity you can't come out of your house to collect your winnings. This covers Amazing Fantasy 15 through to Amazing Spider-Man issue 93. So that means this time we are starting with Amazing Spider-Man 94. Cover dated March 1971. This issue is from the usual writer-artist team of Stan Lee and John Romita, with assistance by Sal Buscema. The cover, though, is all Romita and is all excellent. The top two-thirds feature Spider-Man battling the Beetle, a villain not seen since Daredevil issue 64 back in 1967. He's snatched Aunt May which is better than being near Aunt May's snatch, and is swooping away with a briefcase in his other hand. Um, sucker. See, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult to explain. The beetle has these weird extended suckers where his fingers should be. It's, um, it's a very bizarre design. Anyway, Spider-Man is preparing to leap off a nearby wall and attack. It's true, it's true, screams the cover. Twice. Clearly they didn't think we'd believe them. And me, at the mercy of the bloodthirsty Beetle? I'll be honest, the Beetle is the last villain I thought would make a comeback, and certainly not a villain I thought would make a grab for me. Where's Dr. Octopus when you need him? The final third of our cover promises a super special bonus! Ooh, that's exciting. I wonder what this can be. Cheesecake shots of Murray Jane? Maybe a free gift. One of those cardboard cutout things where you can dress Peter in different outfits. No, no, sadly. Nothing so wonderful. This is Spidey's Origin Retold. Hmm, so not quite the exciting thing it promised for older readers or long-timers. But, you know, for latecomers or new guys, presumably, this is vaguely interesting. On Wings of Death is the title and features the manic menace of the beetle or so it says on the splash page just in case your comic was one of those that didn't have a cover on it which was one of the things of the time wasn't it you could occasionally buy comics that didn't have covers on them because the cover had been ripped off and sent back to the publisher and the news agent was supposed to send the comic back but sold it anyway because you know ooh, that's a little bit conniving but you ended up with a comic so who's to say who's the bad guy there Peter wanders the streets of New York, resplendent in his yellow and green striped shirt, which he wears untucked because he's no longer a squirrel. He's topped his look off with jeans and leather boots, both of which look like they have lifts in them, although it'd be silly if only one of them had a lift in them. Peter doesn't strike me as someone who's that bothered about his height, but both Mary Jane and Gwen seem quite tall, so maybe he's a tad self-conscious. 
The mask of Spider-Man dominates the sky, and Gwen's floating head tops off the splash, which is pretty much Spider-Man in a nutshell. Mopey Peter Parker, forever followed by the spectre of Spidey, and the separation of himself and his girl. Pretty iconic in many ways. Peter notes that everything bad that has ever happened to him happened because of Spider-Man, and he ponders why he has to stay this way. Stan seeding issue 100, perhaps. He then recalls the fateful day he was bitten by the radioactive spider, a flashback which sees additions to the tale being added, such as Pete's encounter with the Tufts from the retelling in Spectacular Spider-Man magazine, and the addition of Ben's funeral, which may be the first time we see it. I could be wrong on that, though. I didn't go back and look that up. The recap follows the usual beats. Great power, great responsibility, Ben's death, Aunt May's weak heart, blah, 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 and a nice splash page of the main villains of the time. The Vulture, Dr. Octopus, the Rhino, the Green Goblin, the Kingpin, the Sandman, the Lizard, and the Beetle? Now, okay, I get that he's this issue's villain, but he's not really what I would call an essential part of Spider-Man's rogues gallery. I mean, Spider-Man's met him, what, twice? Once? Twice, maybe, possibly. Maybe if there's an issue I've not read. I can only recall being in uh, Amazing Spider-Man once way back in the Ditko run. It was a Human Torch team-up issue. Anyway, being able to name all these villains means I qualify for the title Spider-File Supreme. Cheers, Stan. That and three quid will get me a coffee. As the recollections continue, Peter bumps into Betty Brandt, and this prompts further memories of Betty, his first girlfriend, and his fractious relationship with J. Jonah Jameson at the Daily Bugle. No matter how he tries, though, Peter's thoughts always return to Gwen. Peter's walk takes him in the direction of Maze, and just as he enters her house, the beetle flies overhead and smashes through the window of a grocery store that is nearby. The police just happen to be passing by and try and stop him, but they are no match for his wings, which are like a shield of steel. Meanwhile, Peter enters the Parker abode to wonder why Aunt Anna is there. This is weird, as May and Anna now live together. Peter's short-term memory really is shit. The drawing of them together implies that John Romita remembers this, even if Stan doesn't. They show Peter the paper detailing the Beatles' recent attacks on the neighbourhood, and Peter is confused by the apparent random nature of the crimes. A laundry? A bike shop and a bakery? What is occurring? Well, thinks Peter, the Beatles the least of my worries. Oh, Peter. Poor, naive Peter. May encourages Peter to have a, a lie down, and she prepares to make him coffee. Anna wonders why May continues to fuss and pester Peter. He's a strapping young man, not an infant, she berates May. May is a doddery old self, muttering something about the stress of being a student, and then pops out for some milk. You can see where this is going, right? Peter, asleep on the couch, dreams of the beetle. A wonderfully creepy and surrealistic dream, in which the beetle's face dissolves into May's, just as Anna walks in to wake Peter up and tell him that May is being held hostage by that self-same villain. Peter flees the scene, heading to May. But what can you do? Anna yells after him. I can be there, he screams back. 
actually really loved this sequence. Dreams are always a fun narrative device, be they portents of the future or just an exercise in the bizarre. And the way this bled into the main story was really effective and fun. Compare this to the lacklustre dream sequence coming up in issue 100. It was also nice to see a passionate and angry Peter Parker. Too often, Stan will write Peter as very passive and reactive rather than proactive. Spider-Man tackles the Beetle, who smashed into all the shops on this row, as he knew one of them connected to an importing company's vault. Sadly, May walked into the grocery store just as the Beetle found what he was looking for. I mean, what are the odds? Fortunately, with only four pages left, Spider-Man is in no mood to play, and his almost ruthless takedown of the Beetle is actually really fun. As I say, Spider-Man is normally passive and worried about hurting people, even his adversaries. Here, with May under threat, he's all about taking down the Beetle quickly and decisively. The fight causes them to spill through a skylight into a rooftop swimming pool. Are they a thing? Which, in addition to being visually interesting, also provides the key to victory. Whilst the Beetle wears those heavy wings, which curiously let him fly, what's that about? The Beetle is susceptible to drowning, and Spider-Man chucks him in the pool where he lets him sink to the bottom and he dies. <laughs> I'm kidding, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. The Beetle gets wrapped up for the police, and Peter is reunited with May. And as they walk arm in arm back home, Peter wonders if today... Part of that debt to Uncle Ben was repaid. Despite half the issue being a clip show, this was actually a really nice issue. Sure, the, the story itself is pretty weak, but the characterization of Peter and May and their bond is really quite sweet. Let's also not forget that back in this era, Spider-Man's origin and the death of Uncle Ben wasn't referenced half as much as it is now. As such, with Peter believing this in some way assuages his guilt over the death of Ben, this is quite a powerful ending. It also lends credence to my theory that issue 99 is a perfect note on which to end the series. London Bobbies on the Beat provide the backdrop for issue 95's cover as they heroically attack thugs and gunmen on Tower Bridge. Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament are in the background because it's London. For all its many, many clichés, this is a damn good cover. Trap for a Terrorist is by Lee Romita, Sal Buscema and Art Simek, and begins with our hero swinging around New York, still moping about Gwen. Everywhere he turns, he sees Gwen's face, on billboards and passers-by. He can hear her in every sound. He can feel her in the air. Honestly, Peter, you should have gone into poetry. He makes the decision to go to London to find Gwen, to explain. But how can he do that with no money? He heads to the Bugle to see if Jonah will advance him some money, despite not having provided the peerless publisher with any photos for weeks. Peter's not wrong here. Despite being with Robbie back in issue 88, he failed to produce any worthwhile photos. And even though we saw him drop by the Bugle in issues 91 and 92, we didn't see him make a sale. Peter did have an envelope of what looked like photos in his hands on page 10 of issue 92, but again he took off after Bullet and didn't sell them. So this does beg the question, why should Jonah give Peter an advance? If he hasn't produced any photos for ages, why would that suddenly change now? Being a bit of an entitled dick there, Peter, I think. Still, Peter chances his arm, 
whereupon he has a heart-to-heart with Robbie Robertson about George Stacey's death and his problems with Gwen. Robbie, ever the romantic pushover, tells Peter to go to England for some news pics. Of what? Robbie doesn't say. Just get the voucher. I'll sign it, says the magnanimous Mr. Robertson. Wish I had a boss like Robbie. Perhaps wisely, Robbie doesn't mention any of this when Jonah happens by and asks why Peter is so happy. Peter is more than happy. He's ecstatic. And he runs over to May and Anna's house to tell her he'll be away for a while. Apparently, Peter hasn't heard of phones. Or maybe it's just because, as we've established numerous times, in Stan Lee's version of New York, the bugle is five minutes walk away from Queens. Peter encounters Murray Jane, who Anna and May are helping with her costumes for a new show. Presumably, she's playing Pocahontas, given what she's wearing. Or not wearing. For those that argue Murray Jane was always the one, Peter couldn't be more dismissive of her. Despite being clad in leathers and burring plenty of burr midriff, Peter pays MJ Burley a second glance. I wonder if these costumes offer her upcoming show, of which we will learn more in future issues. Harry then gives Peter a lift to the airport. Harry wonders how Peter will find Gwen. After all, London is a pretty big town. Apparently Harry has never heard of the phone book. Peter has heard of the phone book and reveals, although not to the ever-stupid Harry Osborne, that this is how he will indeed track her down. Okay, we need to take a slight break here to discuss a travesty that was bestowed upon Spider-Man some time later, but is pertinent to our discussion. According to the official index of The Amazing Spider-Man, published by Marvel, this is where Gwen Stacy... Excuse me. Gives birth to the children children she conceived with with Norman Osborne in a rancid storyline called Sins Past, which ran in issues five oh nine through five fourteen in two thousand and four. Sorry about that, I seem to have some kind of mental block about being able to say those words in in that particular sequence. Again, according to the official index of The Amazing Spider-Man, conception of the children apparently took place around issue 62. This contradicts something I said in my previous coverage of Amazing Spider-Man 99, whereby I noted that Gwen had planned a naughty night in, just her and Peter. Gwen clearly has sex on her mind. If issue 99 takes place after the best travesty I mentioned earlier, could still have happened. This means that in every appearance between issue 62 and now, Gwen is pregnant and gives birth in between here and issue 98. She gives birth in France. We'll come back to that. So let's assume that thanks to Marvel time, she starts to show around issue 77. So when Gwen was wearing that figure-hugging outfit in issue 82, pregnant. When she's nearly crushed by the truck in issue 83 and had to go to hospital, pregnant. Apparently the doctors who examined her didn't notice. Looking really svelte at her birthday in issue 87? Pregnant. 
at her father's funeral in issue 91, heavily pregnant. Being tossed around the skies of New York by Spider-Man and Iceman in issue 92, super heavily pregnant. Living with her aunt and uncle in London, barely days away from giving birth. Surely Arthur and his wife Nancy would have noticed. Anyway, on the plane to London, Peter encounters a precocious but entertaining small child on the plane, the son of Herbert Knowles, a delegate of the peace talks. What peace talks and why they're taking place in London isn't important. Peter and the kids strike up a rapport that's actually quite charming. When the plane lands, however, the passenger and crew receive word that generic terrorists have planted a bomb under the landing ramp, which is terrible guess that's why they call them terrorists. Of course, Peter changes to Spider-Man and disarms the bomb, but somehow, in all the excitement, the terrorists snatch Knowles and his son. Who these terrorists are and what they're fighting for, not important. What follows is a full-on, all-out action issue, as Spider-Man must take on the terrorists and save Knowles and his son, and it's competently done. The action beats are exciting, and Spidey swinging around London gives the strip a different flavour than usual. Rather nicely, the UK police, led by Scotland Yard Inspector Hargraves, like Spider-Man and appreciate his help. This despite Spidey being his customary dickish self to anyone in authority. Because London is tiny, Spidey swings past Gwen's window, causing her to faint dead away at the sight of him. Pregnancy must be causing dizziness. Spider-Man sets up his camera and finds the terrorists. He gets one of them to tell Spidey that he wants his generic comrades to be released from prison, or the Americans will die. Their fate is sealed by time itself, he says. <laughs> Laughing uncontrollably like a bad villain in an old serial. Honestly, the generic bad guys are the worst part of this story. Still, Peter's anger at the man's callous disregard for the death of a child is a really nice character bit, and Hargraves has to pull Spidey off the cackling goon before Spidey cracks the guy's skull open, which is actually quite a nice moment, seeing Spidey snap. Hargraves refuses to deal with terrorists. It's not what we do, don't you know? Leaving it to Spidey to sort out. Just like Adam West, Spider-Man realises a clue maybe in what the terrorists said. Sealed by time itself were the words, and from this, Spider-Man deduces that they must be in Big Ben. Now, as Peter is a tourist, we'll forgive this faux pas. Big Ben is the giant bell housed within the tower. The clock itself is called the Clock Tower of the Palace of Westminster. Pedantry aside, Spider-Man is correct, and he rescues the kid and Knowles and disarms the bomb before it can go off. How? Not important. Knowles and his son are eternally grateful. Hargraves wonders why Spider-Man is scorned in the States when he's clearly a hero, and Spider-Man makes the news. Which is the worst thing that could happen for Peter. Now he can't see Gwen. If he and Spider-Man are seen over here, she'll put two and two together and deduce his secret. And he can't do that to her. Not with Spider-Man being believed responsible for her father's death. Oh, what a tangled web. And in the final irony, Gwen starts to realise that maybe Spider-Man isn't so bad after the non-fake BBC News reports that he saved that child. She's more upset that Peter hasn't come after her. Peter walks below thinking that, as Gwen hasn't even wrote, she must have forgotten all about him. 
Ignoring the generic terrorists and the generic plan, this was a strong action issue, once again showing that Spider-Man's unerring sense of responsibility must always trump Peter's love life. Peter's anguish makes the story, as does the British Bobbies actually liking our hero. It's nice to see Spider-Man actually win one for a change, although in typical Peter Parker fashion, it does cost him. He does save the kid and Knowles, though, despite not being able to see Gwen. That's not nothing. If Peter hadn't been there, they would have died. Amazing Spider-Man 96 kicks off a trilogy that needs no introduction to long-time comics fans. The Green Goblin, Harry is High arc was highly lauded and very controversial in its day, as it saw Dan ditch the influential and censorious comics code to tell a story that connected with his audience in a different way, and showed that comics really could tackle important issues while still delivering the requisite chop-socky entertainment. Gil Kane is back, and he takes the cover artist slot. A poor kid lies on the floor being attended by two cops as Spider-Man crawls away. He's getting away, yells a cop, the implication being Spider-Man has something to do with it. It's a low-key cover, more in vain of DC's mystery-style comics that make you pick the comic up to see how all this happened, in comparison to Ramita's more action-orientated jobs. Loads of cover copy as well. What you've been waiting for, this one's got it all. A job for Peter Parker. The last fatal trip. Mary Jane knocks him dead. And the Green Goblin returns. Stan Lee wrote it, and John Romita provides finishes and inks, but the layouts are all Gil Kane, and it's nice to have him back. For the first time in years, the splash isn't part of the story, at least, not initially. It's actually a flash-forward, a close-up of a photo that Peter took in London of Spider-Man fighting the terrorists, and it's clutched tightly in Robbie Robertson's hand, his pipe jutting into frame. It's excellent, but as we turn the page, we go back in time, or was that a flash-forward in time? It doesn't really matter, because as the story opens, Peter is still on the flight home. He goes straight from the airport to the bugle to show Robbie the photos he's paid for. Panel 3 of page 2 is wonderful. A shot of Peter looking through the airplane window with New York reflected on his face. Absolutely gorgeous image. Well done, Gil. Peter offers the photos to Robbie, completely forgetting the reason he couldn't go and see Gwen was because he was afraid she'd put two and two together. And here he is giving Robbie pictures of Spider-Man. In London. When Peter was. What a bonehead. I've got to figure that Robbie has to figure it out here. He has to know. He's too sharp not to know. If he does know, he doesn't let on. Although, curiously, he doesn't ask how it went with Gwen, Robbie's whole reason for sending Peter to London in the first place. The next day at ESU, Harry accosts Peter, saying he's been looking for him. He can't have looked terribly hard as they live together. Harry tells Peter that the gang are going to the theatre tonight to see Murray Jane make her debut in an off-Broadway musical, presumably the costumes of which were made by May Parker and Anna Watson. Peter laments his lack of attendance, claiming he has no money, but Harry tells Peter he'll sub him. Peter hates being a freeloader, but Harry says that Peter has more than earned his keep in tuition fees. Harry also tells Peter he's an idiot for not accepting his father, Norman's offer of a job. Harry takes the decision out of Peter's hands and tells Peter he's going to tell Norman that Peter accepts the job offer. 
there's a lot to unpack here. Firstly, the idea that Peter is helping Harry with his studies is an interesting one, given his own lack of attendance has caused him numerous problems. It's implied, therefore, that Peter even sacrifices his own study time to help Harry. It's also showing us that we don't see everything, and I quite like that. Nowadays, fans kick off if a previously unrevealed revelation wasn't seeded. But I like the idea that these people's lives carry on when we're not watching them. It makes them feel more real somehow. Second, Norman's job offer is a long-standing plot thread that pops up every now and again, if only to demonstrate why Peter can't accept the gig. It didn't stop it from being mentioned in both the Sam Raimi and Mark Webb Spider-Man movies. Personally, I think this would have been a great development for the strip. It wouldn't stop him taking bugle gigs, but it would have added an even greater level of responsibility onto Peter that would have been ripe for melodrama. Third, the addition of Gil Kane sees an injection of modern fashions. Both Peter and Harry have longer hair and sideburns. Harry is dressed in an orange double-breasted suit, the double-breasted look taking over from the classier single-breasted look of the 60s, and is adorned in a yellow turtleneck. Peter has flared jeans and a black shirt under a yellow fringed suede leather jacket. Peter pulls it off better than Harry. Fourth, who is the gang? Flash is in Nam, Gwen is in London, or France, giving birth, and MJ is on stage. That basically leaves Peter and Harry. After a few flashbacks to Amazing Spider-Man issue 40, the revelation that Norman Osborn is in fact the Green Goblin, he decides to accept Norman's offer. He wanders over to the Osborn chemical site, again mere minutes from ESU, and meets with Norman. Stan rather unsubtly, has Norman be wrapping up a physical, and his portly doctor tells Norman, no stress, particularly of the superhero variety. Norman offers Peter an hourly paid gig, and Peter says he'll get back to him with his college timetable. Norman is also treating everyone to the theatre trip tonight, given that the theatre is an old building that he owns. That's a nice touch. Peter leaves content. He bumps into Anna and May in town on a trip to see Her. Her was a play about the hippie counterculture and sexual revolution of the late 1960s and served as a commentary on the Vietnam War and the peace movement, according to Wikipedia. It featured nudity, sex, drug abuse and anti-war sentiment and was hugely controversial at the time. I've never seen her, but I am aware of its pop culture impact, and to have Anna and May go and see this was a nice gag, and also Stan once again showing his cultural awareness. The musical's depiction of the use of illegal drugs may also have influenced this story in a way, as we are about to see. Peter is delighted that May and Anna seem to be enjoying life, and and feels like things are looking up for him too. He switches to Spider-Man after hearing sirens and spots a young African-American kid high as a kite about to take a header off a three-storey building. Kane is a breath of fresh air, artistically speaking. Ramita is a master, no doubt, and I've banged on about how great his covers have been ad nauseum, but Kane's mastery of form, of panel progression, of clean storytelling is simply fantastic. His angles are innovative and dramatic, and he doesn't ever lose that innate Gil Kane-ness. Ramita may be a tad heavy on the inking, but the layouts are pure Kane. Spider-Man catches the falling African-American kid, but it's up to the police to provide the kiss of life that saves him. Wonderfully, 
The cops say they'll turn in their badge before they arrest Spider-Man after this. Peter puts his nifty clothes back on and has a rather preachy monologue about hard drugs, but his thoughts about doing more to help are still relevant. This issue is often compared to the Denny O'Neill Neil Adams run on Green Lantern Green Arrow, and that story is often said to be more hard-hitting. And it is. It's also the very definition of letting the message lead the story, with all pretense of subtlety being lost. What Stan is doing here is no less preachy in places, but much better in execution. This is a standard Spider-Man Green Goblin story, into which real-life problems, in this case drugs, wander. As such, it feels more organic. Peter isn't setting out to lecture about drugs, nor is Stan, but having it encroach upon a regular superhero narrative feels less invasive somehow. Stan is pointing out that the problem exists, albeit within the simplistic confines of a superhero v supervillain melodrama, but he also realises that there are no easy answers. In contrast, O'Neill and Adams felt like they were doing something important, and as such their issues fail for me, whereas this one still works. The DC story may be more realistic, but as we've learned over the years, there's only so much realism you can put into a story about tights wearing superheroes. Later, Peter meets the gang at an off, off, off Broadway theatre. The gang now apparently includes Randy Robertson, a nice addition, but Anna Watson isn't there to see her niece's theatrical debut. Maybe there's not enough nudity in MJ's play for Anna and May. Randy lets rip about the drug problem and pins the blame squirrely on Norman. This is an interesting conversation. Randy is angry that the drugs issue is seen as a black man's problem and lashes out at the privileged and white Norman Osborne, which isn't really fur. Norman retaliates in kind, but both men are right and wrong. Randy is right, drugs are everyone's problem, but he's wrong to blame Norman. Norman is right to protest his innocence, but he's wrong in that he's probably never really paid any attention to the issue. He's never really had to. Stan's writing here is at the top of its game, again proving he still had it. We had a flame burning his ass. Yes, it's not subtle, and the dialogue may be a bit ropey, but in what it's saying and how it sets up Norman's arc, it's very well done. Norman will soon have to pay attention to the drugs issue. Perhaps more interesting for us, as long-time observers of the Gwen-Peter-MJ love triangle, this scene also sees the first substantial Murray Jane scene in quite some time. She's all over Peter, commenting on how he really isn't Puny Parker anymore, and drooling over him when he says he doesn't need help finding his seat as he's a big boy. Don't I know it, retorts MJ, implying she and Gwen have been comparing notes. It's hard to know how to take this other than MJ being a real cow. She's so thirsty for Peter, it's not even subtext. With Gwen out of the picture, she's making her play, and she doesn't care what it does to poor Harry. She's had a history of treating Harry like shit, and here she is doing it again. Both Peter and Harry are uncomfortable with the situation. Of course, there's now an extra layer to this that the original creative team didn't account for. According to later stories, MJ knows Peter is Spider-Man. So she knows about the whole George Stacy death thing. She knows Peter can't be guilty. But she knows what it's done to Gwen and Peter's relationship. And she still 
does this. Mary Jane was often portrayed as less than angelic, and nowhere is this more evident than here. If Peter offered to bed her here and now, she'd jump on him before he finished speaking. I also wonder if Stan was stacking the deck, sabotaging MJ in favour of Gwen. At the interval, Norman starts to look spooked. Peter's spider sense tingles, alerting him to trouble behind a nearby stage door. But both men can only act after the show. Peter lets everyone leave, although MJ doesn't take her eyes off him the entire time, even as she makes a beeline for the exit with Harry. She still watches Peter. I half expected her to have call me written on her eyelids. Peter spots that MJ is bad news for Harry, but so is his father, and that's the bigger issue right now. In a wonderfully tense and well-executed scene, Peter and Norman both head back to the theatre. Peter changes to Spider-Man en route, as does Norman. For in this old building, a storeroom. A storeroom that Norman used back in the day in his criminal career. Remember we said he used to own this building? Spider-Man enters the storeroom and is greeted by the Green Goblin. What a great issue. Thematically, some excellent elements from the drugs angle to things going right for Peter just as Harry's life collapses. A solid reason for the return of the Goblin, some emotional heft from Randy and Murray Jane at her manipulative flirty best. Great art caps off this superior story. Issue 97's cover is credited only to Ramita and is a more traditional action-packed cover featuring Spider-Man tackling the Goblin and putting him in a chokehold and pulling him off his glider. Perfectly fine, action-orientated cover, almost textbook, but somewhat lacking in terms of representing the actual interior. Make a damn good poster, though. For the first time in a long time, Ramita has nothing to do with the arts officially, other than being credited as Artist Emeritus, which seems to be acknowledging that he's now the official art director. I suspect credits like this were to get publisher Martin Goodman off Stan's back. Goodman was such a penny-pinching miser, he demanded to know what it was Ramita actually did, when in actuality Ramita was involved with every book Marvel published. That means that In the Grip of the Goblin was written, as usual, by Stan, but had art by Gil Kane and Frank Igayakoya. And what a difference it makes. Previously, even the delightfully kooky Gil Kane had his art touched up and reworked by Ramita to make it more in keeping with the house style. This is Kane Unchained, although I still detect the hand of Ramita in the faces, particularly Peter and Mary Jane. There's also a distinct lack of detail in the opening few pages, with limited backgrounds on the splash and on page one. The story opens where it left off, and is an elaborate six-page fight scene, making up for last issue's lack of action. It's well done, but some of it seems unusual. Peter holds back because Norman never wanted to be the goblin. Since when? This is a bit of a leap for Peter to make, and seems to be aimed at making the goblin a more sympathetic character. However, the Goblin was never sympathetic. He always seemed to know just what he was doing and went about achieving his goals with a determined zeal. Sure, there's an aspect of split personality to it, but that was only after Norman got amnesia. Norman actively sought to be the Goblin, lied, cheated and stole to make it work. Even now, Norman only seems really 
free to be himself when he's the goblin. Like, that's who he really is. Very little was established about Norman, but he clearly was a ruthless businessman, neglectful father, and an outright unpleasant person. I don't buy Norman as sweet and cuddly until he becomes the goblin. Gobby unleashes an arsenal of weaponry on Spider-Man and gets away, the resultant fight leading him to believe that Spidey has fallen to his death. Peter, still groggy, can't follow and changes back to his civvies. In a continuity snafu, he goes to pick up his clothes where he left them, but they are not the blue suit, yellow tie and pinstriped shirt he was wearing to the theatre, but a pair of jeans, a white shirt and a yellow jacket. Oddly, when Harry gets home, he's wearing the same orange suit, although he's removed the stylish green cravat. So the continuity cops remembered that Harry was wearing the suit, but didn't remember what Peter was wearing? Weird. Peter's thoughts are funny here, as they can be interpreted as him planning on killing Norman to protect his secret. He's doing his teeth, a nice little touch, when Harry gets in and reads Peter the riot act for how he was flirting with Mary Jane. Peter spells it out for Harry. MJ means nothing to me. But Harry doesn't want to hear it. Instead, he pops a few pills, a few too many for Peter, who, for the first time, notices the amount of pills Harry takes. Pills to help him sleep, pills to help him stay awake, pills to relax him, etc. Again, I found this more realistic, for a superhero comic, than the Green Arrow stuff. Sure, it's a retcon, but Harry slowly becoming addicted to over-the-counter medication is a lot more relatable than suddenly he's doing heroin. ESU the next day is another treat, sartorially speaking. Harry is again rocking the orange suit he wore last night, but ditches the cravat for a yellow turtleneck. It's Peter who steals the show, though. He's adorned in a purple striped shirt open to the chest, with a white t-shirt underneath, over which he's donned a leather waistcoat. However, it's not the jeans and large belt which steal the show. No, 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 no. It's the beads and the medallion Peter has adopted. Peter totally owns this look. And I have to assume it's Gwen that's brought him up to date, given that throughout the 60s, Peter always dressed like he was in a 50s sitcom. Murray Jane is dressed positively conservatively compared to Harry and Peter. Still, this doesn't stop her hitting on Peter once again, deflating poor Harry even more. Harry's weakened state proves too much, and a blonde, mustachioed man who looks a lot like Robert Redford in this period pounces, selling Harry some stronger pills to help him cope. This guy looked familiar, so I looked back a page or two, and lo and behold, there he is at the theatre watching Mary Jane's performance in the last issue. He's also witness to Harry and MJ's bust-up, implying he's an opportunist, or he knows Harry from school. Again, I've mentioned before that Stan's failing memory meant he referred to events that we didn't see, but this gives the impression of a continuing narrative. We follow Peter. We don't really know what Harry and MJ are up to when we're following the Spider-Man stuff. When they announced the Mary Jane comic recently, I kind of wished it was a flashback story set in and around these issues, like an untold Tales of Mary Jane kind of thing, because MJ clearly has a life away from the gang, and I'd love to see what she was up to. Peter manages to escape Mary Jane's claws, but loses Harry. He refers to MJ as Miss Ever Faithful, which is a hell of a dig, but then gets distracted by news of the Green Goblin's actions. 
He heads over to the Osborne factory to ask where Norman is, but no one has seen him for the past couple of days. Peter tells the receptionist not to tell Norman he was there. The end of the day at ESU, and suddenly a chipper Harry catches up with MJ and says he forgives her. This is the complete wrong thing to say, and Murray Jane fires him off. She even smiles as she does so. Now, there's something I do need to address here. I do not hate Murray Jane. In actuality, I love her. I think she's a great character. She's bright, she's vibrant, she's fun-loving, she's quite deep, eventually. But in these strips, let's be honest, she's flighty. MJ cares about one thing. MJ. She's got her eyes clearly focused on the prize, which is her ticket out of here. Be that dancing, acting, or whatever, MJ knows where she's going and will stop at nothing to get there. She's quite a contemporary character in that regard. My issue with MJ is people claiming she's the one. Peter's one true soulmate, and has always been thus. But the source material does not bear that out at all. In the films? Well, maybe. But the comics? Not so much. Peter thinks MJ is gorgeous, which she is, but the minute things start hotting up with Gwen, Peter doesn't pay MJ any mind. In fact, in his personal thoughts, which we are privy to, he doesn't really have a very high opinion of her. He thinks she's a a bit of a user, someone who'll take what she can get from you and then move on, and he clearly thinks she's not good for Harry, the kind of person who probably can't believe his luck that he's ended up with MJ. Whilst this whole Harry on drug thing is a retcon, it's a totally believable one, given that Harry has issues. We've seen that his dad is, at best, an absent father. He tries too hard to be one of the boys, clearly using his money to buy his friends. Hell, even Peter sponges off him, albeit with at least a pang of guilt. We have no idea what happened to Harry's mum. When he becomes a part of a core group that boasts ultra-popular Flash Thompson and girls that look like Murray Jane and Gwen, well, he thinks that his boat's coming. Compare this to Peter, who really doesn't care what others think of him. He just fell into being friends with these people. Murray Jane is now really showing her true colours. With Gwen out the way, she's making a beeline straight for Peter, although I have to confess I don't know why. Peter is so far away from MJ's type as to be a different country. I can only assume Murray Jane wants Peter simply because she can't have him. A crestfallen Harry heads for home and blames Peter for all of this. Peter retaliates as he's always had a short fuse, something that seems to have been forgotten in more recent characterizations. Peter tells Harry he needs to go and lie down, and Harry agrees, but the minute Peter leaves he hits the pills. The panel where Harry goes into his bedroom to be enveloped in darkness is stunning storytelling. Peter spends the night looking for the goblin to no avail. He returns home to find Harry passed out, overdosed. He goes to call Doc Bromwell, although why Bromwell would be Harry's doctor as well as May's, I have no idea, but is interrupted as the goblin makes his move. Another blindingly good issue. Keeping the goblin off screen for most of the story, despite Peter's constant attempts to find him, works a treat in building suspense, and having him show up at the end just as Harry desperately needs help is well executed. 
the structure again plays against type. Like The Empire Strikes Back, another trilogy middle chapter, the big action beat is at the beginning, and the rest of the stories are building tension, creating character arcs, and setting up the finale. Stan may be leaving the book soon, but it looks like he's going out strong. Issue 98 concludes the tale. Gil Kane is back on cover duties as Spidey slides down a wall, his spidery powers apparently deserting him. The goblin looms large, laughing as Spidey falls. Losing your grip, Spider-Man? It had to happen. I planned it this way, he screams. Spider-Man has apparently misplaced the red spider from the back of his costume. The goblin bursts through the window, but Peter, who can't make a move because he's worried about Harry, holds his friend's overdosed body in his hands, practically willing the goblin not to attack. The amnesia plot seems to make the goblin completely unaware that he's Norman, or unaware that Norman has a son anyway. This flatly contradicts Spectacular Spider-Man magazine number two, but whatever, it works. Norman has a vague recollection of the boy in Peter's arms, and he flees vowing to return. Peter rushes Harry over to the nearest hospital and leaves him in the care of the doctors. He bats around some ideas that Harry was always a bit weak, but MJ's rejection of him pushed him over the edge. This makes him think of Gwen. Gwen is also thinking of him. Her inner monologue needs some work. She basically thinks that it's all her fault for pressuring Peter into marriage, even though it's Peter who keeps thinking about that, and she vows to put it right. This is really quite lame. A better inner monologue would have been Gwen mulling over the recent incident of Spider-Man being in London and saving Knowles and his son. Then she could have realised that, in her grief, she lashed out at Spider-Man, when in fact her father always said Spider-Man was misunderstood. Basically change the two thought balloons in panels five and six of page five. Making this about Peter not proposing is stock bad writing of a woman. Secondly, Gwen isn't thinking of the kids she's just had slash about to have, doesn't seem to have been to France yet, and definitely doesn't look nine months pregnant slash like she's just given birth. Peter leaves ESU later that day, but hasn't seen MJ to try and get her to go and see Harry. He's hit up by the Robert Redford guy who wants to know where Harry is as he has more drugs to peddle. Peter sees Red, and we get one of the single best scenes in Spider-Man history. Redford takes Peter into an alley and calls out two hysterically dressed goons. One is an African-American with a magnificent afro and a lush purple three-piece suit, and the second is a hippie-looking Caucasian with a resemblance to Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. They start to rough Peter up, and for the first time, Peter couldn't give a shit about his secret identity. He pastes these guys, taking the two goons out with no problem, and then turning to Redford, who pulls a gun. This allows Peter to wipe the floor with the drug-pushing little shit. Honestly, Peter hands him a savage beatdown, smacking him around and leaving him out cold in the trash. Symbolism! Peter even enjoys this, feeling they deserved it. He's not wrong. Violence is rarely a solution, but occasionally it's necessary. And let's be honest, none of these guys would go to jail. Over at the Bugle, Jonah wants to know how Robbie is going to cover Harry's hospitalisation due to the fact that Norman is a big advertiser with the Bugle. Robbie thinks Jonah wants the story spiked over ad revenue, but 
as the redemption of Jonah continues, it's just that Jonah wants to know the angle. Robbie's angle is truth. Drugs affect everyone. Social standing is irrelevant. Jonah orders the story written up. We've had very little action in this story so far. It's all been set up in character beats, which has been pretty great. But this is a superhero comic and the action gods must be sated. So Spider-Man takes to the skies of New York and finally confronts the Goblin. However, Gobby has some tricks up his sleeve. A new gas that removes Spidey's adhesive properties at just the same moment that he runs out of web fluid. Talk about adding problem upon problem. It's fun to see Stan take away two of Spider-Man's biggest assets and have him find a way to make it work without them. Spidey manages to get the upper hand, getting Gobby in a neck lock and steering him towards Harry's hospital bed. The Goblin goes into shock upon seeing Harry and Spider-Man takes him home, burns the costume and places a naked Norman in bed. So both Gwen and Peter have seen little Norman. For some reason... Peter assumes this is it. Presumably he's seen the page count, because despite having no evidence to the fact, he believes Norman is now back in full control and remembers nothing about being the Goblin. This is a really lame ending to this story and signifies the problems with the Goblin at this point. All his post-issue 40 stories end the same. Jerry Conway was right in one way. This stalemate did need to come to an end. Peter changes back to his civvies and walks home, where he finds Gwen waiting for him. All problems are forgotten when he's in the luscious Miss Stacy's arms. This was a disappointing conclusion to what had been a pretty great series of issues. Up until this final battle, this had been a triumph. Stan showing he still had it when he wasn't phoning it in. Great new art styles with the return of Gil Kane and some wonderful characterisation. The drugs issue wasn't shoehorned in, but with some minor niggles, was handled well. And then this, an ending that just resets it all. It may have been better to have Harry's overdose be what caused Norman to revert to the Goblin, showing that both Harry and Norman have a history of running away from their problems. Then, Spidey using Harry to cure Norman would have been cyclical. Harry and Norman could then have worked on their relationship. Gwen's return is also too pat, too easy. It doesn't really resolve any of their problems. Love isn't enough. Relationships take work. And I'm not sure Peter is putting the work in. Still, these issues deserve their place in comics history. They are better, I feel, than the DC equivalent, in that they still manage to tell a story and focus on the characters. Green Arrow, Green Lantern, by comparison, is about drug abuse. This is about how drug abuse happens and how it affects people. I already covered Amazing Spider-Man 99 back in show number 88. There, my thesis was that if there was to be an end point to the Amazing Spider-Man, then issue 99 is the best place for that to be. I hold that opinion even more strongly after reading all these issues in sequence. Issue 95 saw Peter believe he had atoned, however slightly, for the death of Ben Parker. These last issues saw Peter and Gwen back together again after being torn apart, and Peter seriously thinking about taking the job with Norman Osborn and looking to the future. Amazing Spider-Man 99 was cover dated August 1971 and has a cover by Gil Kane and Frank Giacoya. 
Spider-Man swings above the heads of the inmates taking over a prison, one of which holds a gun to the head of the warden. It's very Gil Kane, with two up nostril shots and open mouthed expressions, but as always with Kane, it's magnificently composed. It's lacking in background detail though, which means that the top quarter of the left hand side is blue, with very little else happening. A Day in the Life of, featuring Panic in the Prison, are the titles, implying Stanley couldn't decide which he preferred. This was written by The Man, with art by Kane and Gaia Koya and letters by Art Simek. The splash page is gorgeous. Beautifully laid out by Kane, it's a montage piece with Spider-Man on the left-hand side, looking a little off in that Gil Kane way, but nothing egregious. Peter and Gwen take centre stage, looking totes adorbs. Peter, in a blue polo neck and white jacket ensemble, tight brown slacks and tan boots, takes Gwen chin in his hands as if to kiss her as they walk. Gwen, looking dreamy in an orange figure-hugging polo neck, red skirt, yellow jacket and calf-high leather boots, looks at Peter adoringly. She clasps his hand, which is around her waist, and if they didn't win Comics Couple of 1971, it's only because that miserable bastard Jerry Conway stacked the deck. Gwen's hair is platinum blonde and her eyes are powder blue. The headband is present and correct. She's looking remarkably svelte for someone who has apparently just had twins. Honest, that's the last gag I will make at the expense of a little-known and rarely referred to story arc called Sins Past, which few people even remember today. The Splash also features an unknown fellow with a long 70s flick, picking at a guitar as if scoring Peter and Gwen's day. This is a pretty typical example of how Marvel rolled back in the day. This Splash isn't dynamic in the traditional comic sense. There are no supervillains, no action, no sense of dread. It's a character piece, and all the better for it. As readers, this is what we were here for. The Peter Parker relationship stuff. Sure, all Spider-Man was fun and all, but the characters were why we came back every month. This one you don't dare miss, runs some additional copy, although chances are you've already bought the comic if you're reading the splash page. Also featuring Spidey on TV, runs some more blurb. The story opens with little preamble. Peter and Gwen have found each other again, we are told, and we go from there. Why or how they'd lost each other is irrelevant. Feeling like every other young couple in the world, Gwen and Peter stir into each other's eyes, completely ignorant of what's going on around them. They wander past strangers who look unenvious of their love. Posted stickers adorn the fences proclaiming, VOTE! and Marvel Mania International. The entire page centres around the idea that Peter is about to propose. He knows it. Gwen knows it, the reader knows it, he just doesn't actually go ahead and do it. Peter drops Gwen off at home and vows that Spider-Man isn't going to come between them ever again, and that now he's got his personal life together, he needs a job, so he can support Gwen properly when he pops the question. Everything about this opening page and a half signifies a major change in the life of Peter Parker, with the reader being teased that issue 100 will be a proposal. Norman Osborn had offered him a job previously, but Peter decides he can't ask Norman for it because of the annoying habit Norm has of turning into Spider-Man's arch-adversary, the Green Goblin. He decides instead to walk over to the Daily Bugle. In the dialogue, he says, I'll head there now, but when he arrives at the Bugle, he has changed clothes, now wearing a nice blue suit, striped shirt and orange tie. The tie is a sartorial no-no, Pete. A splash of colour with a black suit is okay, Orange and light blue look a little tacky. Still, this isn't GQ, and Peter is delighted to learn that Robbie Robertson has already lined up a job for him. 
Peter isn't down with this, and a great confrontation with Jonah Jameson ensues as Peter lays the law down. This job is to take photos at the city pen where there is a riot. The inmates are losing it and the warden is a hostage. Peter, not unreasonably, points out that this will be a dangerous gig. Spider-Man may be there, and Peter's done risking his life for peanuts. He wants proper dough and a staff job. Jonah is flabbergasted. Where's Peter grown this spine from? Scenes where Peter stood up to Jonah were always a joy, but this one is especially fun for having Robbie Robertson stood in the background smirking at Peter's sudden appearance of massive balls. Peter's gumption has always been there, but he's never needed a full-time paying gig before. Gwen is now his reason for being. Jonah capitulates to Peter's demands, and a smiling Peter Parker heads out, looking forward to using his new mini-camera for the first time. He dons his Spider-Man outfit and swings across town. Kane's panel work here is fluid and gorgeous, his anatomy credible and his depiction of New York realistic. Marvel comics always work best like this, the unreal Spider-Man swinging in a thoroughly recognisable environment. Spider-Man arrives at the prison and quickly gets the lay of the land. Encountering two lookout guards, Spider-Man webs them both up and then one of them tells Spidey what he wants to know. He says they are only protesting the conditions they are held in and that the ringleader, Turpo has promised that he will get them the due. My research into this issue has people claim that this storyline was inspired by the Attica prison riots that took place in the Attica Correctional Facility in New York during September of 1971. However, this issue was on sale in May of 1971, which would make Stan a pretty good fortune teller. The coincidence is amazing, though, unless this was a social issue that was bubbling below the surface for a while before finally exploding. That, though, would imply Stan took his stories from the political issues of the day, and if we read Twitter, we all know that that's not true. Either way, this issue will have been on the stands in August, as the real events occurred in September, which shows how sometimes fiction can mirror reality in the most uncomfortable of ways. Spider-Man manages to make it into the prison and sensibly decides to stay in the shadows until he can determine where the blame lies. Typical of Peter and Stan, our hero wants to know all the facts before leaping in and, interestingly, doesn't just side with who the establishment would say are the bad guys. Spidey isn't sure of what's what here, wants to hear both sides before forming an opinion. You can tell he wasn't raised on Twitter. He makes his way to the warden's office where he learns that Turpo is actually a scumbag who is playing the cops off against the criminals. The criminals do want better conditions, but Turpo is using that as cover for his own escape. When the inmates find out, they feel betrayed by Turpo and side with Spider-Man as he takes Turpo and his men out in seconds. With that taken care of, the warden promises to listen to the inmates' demands and the riot is called off. It's all a little pat, to be honest, but it does show Marvel's tendency to at least try and tackle subjects like this in its stories. The subject of prison conditions did end up being a big issue, and the solution, as always in real life, were far more complicated than it was portrayed in this comic book story. Still, let's marvel at Stan's ability to tell this story and wrap it up in 12 pages. It never feels rushed or badly paced, it all unfolds at a reasonable clip, and the action is understated, the story instead preferring to preach that communication and negotiation is key, rather than fisticuffs and bullheadedness. Another way Marvel scored over some of its competition was these shades of grey that the protagonists would frequently operate under. 
On his way back to the bugle, Spider-Man is yelled at from a window by the host of a late-night talk show. Again, my research has led me to believe that this is supposed to be Johnny Carson, who means very little to me, but apparently hosted something called The Tonight Show, live from New York at this time. It was a big deal. Carson wants Spidey to appear on that night's show to talk about the riot whilst it's still current. He tries to stiff Spider-Man out of money for his appearance, promising that it may make New York love ya. But instead, Peter is Peter and says he needs bread, man. Carson promises to pay the going rate, whatever the hell that is. Spidey heads back to the bugle and after developing the film, Peter gives Jonah the photos. His little ploy backfires though, as being on staff means he can't be paid until Friday. This is a great example of Parker luck. It's not brought on by his own stupidity or his own fault. It's just the way things are for a staffer. Peter is now perturbed that he won't be able to take Gwen out for the night. He then swings back over to 30 Rockefeller Plaza, which, according to Wikipedia, was where The Tonight Show was filmed at this time. Once on Earth, Spider-Man practically does a PSA about the state of correctional facilities and how they breed more crime than they cure. Politics, comics... Enough said. Alas, before Spider-Man can be paid, the police arrive because Spider-Man is still wanted in connection with the death of George Stacey. A wonderful piece of continuity. He takes off annoyed that he didn't get paid. What the hell's he going to tell Gwen? Turns out Gwen isn't too bothered. She's got planned a naughty night in, just her and Peter. Gwen clearly has sex on her mind, which pisses all over since... Oh, nope! Stop it! Said it, I wouldn't mention it again. I did it once before and I think I got away with it. But, you know, call it a day. You can see why I would think this was a great end point for the series if you go and read it yourself. Peter makes a number of vows here. One, to not let Spider-Man get in the way of relationships ever again. Two, he makes a conscious effort to get a paying job, albeit a part-time one, to allow him time to study. And he's very definitely about to propose to Gwen and she knows it and is clearly about to say yes. This is a Peter Parker that he's grown up, sorted himself out and decided what he wants. Compare this to the Peter Parker of the post-brand-new-day stories, a man who can't pick out his own underwear without help. This is also the best place for Peter to tell Gwen about being Spider-Man and seeing how that conversation goes. Imagine an alternate universe where Stan had done that and truly taken the strip in a new and uncharted direction. The superhero girlfriend who knows the secret and accepts it. Stan arguably did too good a job with Peter and Gwen, with numerous writers and artists believing that the next logical step for the characters was marriage. I wouldn't quite go that far. Peter isn't particularly financially solvent at this point, although Gwen has her own place and doesn't seem to be short of money given that she doesn't have a job. Granted, her father was just killed in the line of duty, which perhaps, on a purely mercenary level, meant a massive payout for Miss Stacy. Either way, neither one of them know what they want to do after they leave ESU, but an engagement with them setting up plans for the future really could have taken the strip in new and uncharted directions. A fine place to end, as the future for Gwen and Peter was unwritten in the minds of the readers. Yes, I totally just used stock footage from a previous episode. This, obviously, wasn't the end. Amazing Spider-Man was still a top-selling title, and so, issue 100 saw a really exceptional cover from John Romita beckon readers towards the new stands. It's one of the truly iconic covers, and it's found itself plastered on all manner of merchandise ever since. Spider-Man is the only colour image, crawling over the negatively rendered faces of his large supporting cast and rogues gallery. One of the most 
eye-catching covers to ever appear on a Spider-Man comic book. The Spider or the Man is credited to having been written by Stan Lee, but according to Ramita's afterword in the masterwork for these issues, he plotted it. In a move that probably did Stan no favours years down the line, he also takes the credit of creator. Now, I love Stan, but he didn't even come up with the story for this issue. I get that there was bad blood between he and Ditko, and in his later years, Stan would try to make amends by mentioning his artists in as many interviews as he could. But this kind of thing is why people claim Stan is a credit hog and a charlatan. A tip of the hat somewhere to Ditko would have been appreciated. Ah well. Gil Kane and Frank Gaia were on art duties. Now, in the context of the times, anniversary issues didn't have the same cachet they do today, with most comics rarely acknowledging the number on the cover. Action comics and detective comics passed their milestones with nary a mention, and although Fantastic Four had passed its centenary barely a year earlier, the celebrations had been muted. Like the FF, Amazing Spider-Man emblazoned its anniversary status on the cover, claiming it was long-awaited and that the story would have the wildest shock ending of all time. Well, kind of got that right. The issue is the Gilcaniest yet, with no less than eight up the nostril shot, a beloved camera angle of the artist. And there's barely a glimpse of a Ramita redrawn panel anywhere. With all this hype, therefore, it's sad to report that after the last four issues been really pretty damn good, issue 100's a letdown. John Ramita apparently came up with the cliffhanger, but judging by the rest of the issue, nothing else. So Stan creates a tedious runaround with barely a plot to speak of. The issue opens with Spider-Man stopping a bank robbery and then thinking that the world is passing him by. Following on from issue 99, marriage is still on his mind, and he has no plans on being in a threesome with Gwen, especially when the other person is Spider-Man. To that end, he decides now is the time to re-engage with a hitherto unknown project that he's apparently been working on for years. A serum to remove his powers. When in the hell has Peter had time to be working on this? As with all mad scientists in comics, he tests the serum on himself, with no testing process or development time. He just drinks it. Where do these people get their degrees? Peter passes out, and his life plays before his very eyes. Uncle Ben's funeral, Jonah, Betty Brandt, Captain Stacy's death, and then Spider-Man's arch foes. There are imaginary battles with the Vulture, the Lizard, the Green Goblin, Dr. Octopus and the Kingpin. The fights are all rote. Unlike in issue 95, Kane doesn't take advantage of the dreamlike nature of the story to go all out and create truly psychedelic landscapes of surrealistic imagery. The dream sequence closes with Stacy telling Peter that being Spider-Man is his gift and his curse. A line that will be familiar to people who like Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies. Stacy likens Peter to Christ, which I'm pretty sure is a Superman allergy, not Spider-Man. Someone who was given powers, who tried to help but was destroyed for it. And Peter must embrace his destiny. He cannot ever have a normal life. He is Spider-Man.
I didn't really like this. As we've discussed at length, I feel issue 99 is a great place to end the story. And the build-up to issue 99 and then issue 99 itself is Peter realising that maybe it's time to move on with his life, to put Spider-Man behind him, not quit it completely, but maybe concentrate more on being Peter Parker. This issue seems to completely contradict the development of the last couple of issues by saying, no, 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 you will always be Spider-Man. Peter awakens from this nightmare to see his serum has backfired spectacularly. He has grown four extra arms. Why four extra arms and not two extra arms and two extra legs? <laughs> well, dear listener, apparently Kane originally drew exactly that, but Ramita thought it looked goofy and altered it. It couldn't have been any dopier than this cliffhanger, which concludes an unsatisfactory celebratory issue with burly stifled guffaws. I know, I know, I know there are people for whom the body horror of this all gave them the willies, but I'm not one of them. Even as a kid I laughed at this, thinking it incredibly stupid, even for comics. I did get to read it first in the Treasury edition, though, so that made it at least look nice. As an adult, though, I'm amazed at how weak the rest of it is. The cliffhanger may work in the payoff. We'll have to wait and see. Spoiler, it doesn't. But as an anniversary story, this is really poor. There's literally no story here. Peter decides to cure himself of his powers and it backfires. That's the nugget of a story. The logline. The pitch. It isn't in and of itself a story. Thematically, each of the fights play into Peter wondering why he's Spider-Man until George spelled it out for him. And we also must wonder why George and not Uncle Ben. And the build-up to the arms bursting forth from his skin is well done. But this is mostly self-indulgent padding leading to a cliffhanger. A cliffhanger, I'm willing to bet, sounded a lot better in the pitching stage than it works in execution. That this is almost Stan's last issue is doubly sad. Thankfully, it isn't, but we'll be looking at Roy Thomas's supply teacher gig and then returning to Stan for his last stint on the book when we return to the amazing Spider-Man in the future. <laughs> Well, did you miss me? Just here to tell you that Manuscript Podcast is returning soon with new episodes, weekly episodes. With Super Friends and the Christopher Reeve movies behind me, we head into the late 1980s with the Ruby Spear Super Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Superman. Intercut with episode of Superboy. That's right, Ruby Spear Superman and the Adventures of Superboy coming soon to the Manscreen Podcast at www.com. Our emails tonight come from Alistair Jakes has emailed in on Star Trek and Top Transport. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Alistair. 
I finally got around to listening to your episode Walls and All, and I've now completed two different games whilst checking out a different Star Trek podcast. I am increasingly understanding of the kind of perspective you espouse in Walls and All, that of the rage when a franchise and changes established canon. You explained yourself well, even if I don't share this perspective. I only started seriously watching Star Trek after having already seen the first two Kelvin timeline movies and the first Star Trek series I watched in depth was Deep Space Nine. To me, this stuff is normal. I have my problems with the first two Kelvin timeline movies, but it feels like a natural off-ramp to explore the background of the original series. I distinctly agree that there were better ways to go about enabling that, but I do think the original series left a lot of story opportunity for exploration. Uh, Well, it did! Alistair, and a lot of that's covered in the books and the comics. I just, I'm just not a fan of the reboot. I don't mind. I like to think I don't really rage at stuff like that because ultimately it's just not that important, really. You know, I've still got Star Trek and all the novels and all the comics, and I pick and choose my canon from those novels and comics. For instance, I think the DC Comics version of Kirk's first mission on the Enterprise is much better than Vonda McIntyre's novel, Enterprise: The First Adventure. And, you know, that's that's just better for sanity. I mean, the Kelvin universe, I think the Kelvin universe will just disappear. Uh, it'll be a footnote in Star Trek history. It doesn't look like Star Trek Four is going to happen, or at least not with that cast. So basically the future of Trek is back on television, which is where I think it belongs. And at least with Picard, which has just wrapped up its first season, Trek seems to be going forward again. And Discovery's third season is going to take place even beyond Picard. So finally, after 20 years of nothing but prequels and reboots, it seems like we're finally getting Star Trek going forward again. But ultimately, really, all I want, all I want from from future Star Trek, all I want is a TV series about a crew going boldly on board the Starship Enterprise. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Remember, it's in the opening credits every week. Why, Why that's so difficult for the, the powers that be at Paramount to just grasp, you know, just take another crew, a starship called Enterprise, set it at the back end of the 25th century and go forward from there. Doesn't seem like that difficult an idea to me. Anyway, Alistair continues, I just watched The Wrath of Khan and The Search for Spock, two films that show great can happen if you mind the original series for inspiration. On a lighter topic, my favourite transport has to be Moya from Farscape, and to a lesser extent Talon, her gunship offspring. After that, it's the Defiant from Deep Space Nine. If cars are to be listed, then the Chevy Impala from Supernatural gets my vote. Goodbye for now, and I'm sorry if I poked a nerve in that last email. No, you didn't. Don't worry about that. We're all big enough that we can take a few knocks, as Scotty once said. Besides, it gave me a show. So, you know, anything that gives me a show, I'm more than grateful for. So thank you very much. Our next email is from Mitchell Sanders. I have to admit your overview of Spider-Man stories. There are so many things that you are consider that are always interesting. It sounds so much more interesting to some of the more modern stories. And the insight with Gwen and Murray Jane makes me wish we could really run with these two. Overall, I love your work. It helps introduce me to a lot of things I never knew existed. Feel free to use my name as my email is a mouthful, Mitchell Sanders. Well, thank you very much, Mitchell. It's much appreciated. Um, don't be a stranger. Email in some more. It's always nice when people do that. Okay, that's the email sack cleaned out. So uh, if you want to email in, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is the place to do it. Um, 
I, I, I really do hope it's all going to be all right. <laughs> Testing my resolve in that regard. You know, the 90-day lease on uh, trial period on 2020 is almost up. Can we not send it back? Anyway, um, I don't know what's next. I've not got anything planned. Oh, yes, I do. I've, I've already recorded it. What an idiot. It's an audio commentary on By Any Other Name. The Star Trek episode of the same name, unless I've already released it. I may have done these the other way around, who can say. Uh, so drop me an email, stay in touch, stay safe. I hope you're all okay in whatever situation you end up finding yourself in this trying time. Um, it will all be over eventually, and we'll all get back to normal, hopefully. So I'll see you all real soon. Take care. Spider-Man, welcome fame, he's ignored, action is his reward to him, life is a great big hang-up, wherever there's a hang-up, you'll find Spider-Man.